Hebrews chapter 1, and we will read verses 1 through 4, and the title of the message is, Which Christ? This is part 2 from last week. Which Christ referring to? The scripture talks about the fact that there is another Jesus, another Christ, another gospel, and another spirit. So we're going to make some distinctions this morning about the Christ of the Bible that we believe in versus the Christ of popular false religion out there. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. God, who in many times and various ways spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. This is the Christ that we're talking about. Whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Who, speaking of Christ, being in the brightness of his glory, in the express image of his person, the person of the Father, upholding all things by the word of his power, and when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Last week, we did part one of this message. We primarily looked at uh, verses one and two, and we concentrated more on the person of Christ. In some of this verse here, the latter part of verse three, we'll be looking mostly at the work of Christ. But as always, as we deal with either one, there's some overlap and some blending. There has to be because his person and his work is one whole meritorious thing that is used in um, our righteousness. We mentioned, uh, I'll mention a couple things I said last week in the introduction that I think is important enough to repeat. We mentioned last week that people think they have a liberty to express or talk about the Lord Jesus Christ in any way they want that's connected to their personal bias, their opinion, their religion, uh, their tradition, their philosophy, which is normally tied to myths and uh, hearsay. They just they hear something and they pass along and it becomes ingrained into this uh, habitually gathering up things that they can't prove from the scripture, that they just sound good to the natural mind and they'll just say, they'll repeat them and say, this is who... I think Christ is. We know that it is uh, vital to speak the truth of God's word concerning what he says about himself. And he is particular about that. He is jealous of who he is, jealous of his name, jealous of his glory, won't share his glory. So this is a serious matter. This is not just uh, an issue of uh, misrepresenting a common person, a, a human sinful being, misrepresenting them. This is talking about God Almighty, and there is no excuse to misrepresent him because he declares in his word who he is. And he gives all these warnings about his name, his character, what he does, his will, all these things are very, very clear. So it's, uh, it's vitally important to speak clearly, use plainness of speech, and be as accurate, as precise as uh, possible in dealing with communicating the word of God, what he says about himself. And we had mentioned that uh, people seem to be pretty quick to guard their own character, defend their own character, even defend and, and get in fights about uh, their favorite politician, their favorite sports team, different things like this. They would even just as soon get in a fight about their dog 
than about the Lord Jesus Christ as far as character is concerned. We had mentioned that um, people that are perverting the character of God, when we talk about the character of God, we're talking about the display of God's character attributes as they're put together to define his person. If you pervert those character attributes, what you've done is you have misrepresented the God of the Bible and what you've done is gone off the rails and you've described a false God of your own imagination that is against the truth. It would be just like, you know, we've got several people here who could I pick on. Rob, we could say Rob Dennison is a five foot two Asian who is 300 pounds and uh, he has a tendency to wear these kung fu robes and he drives a um, semi-truck when he drives here and um, he's been in jail for he's been in prison for bank robbery right off the get-go we start saying this is not the Rob Dennison that everybody here knows this is if you look up your own name on the internet you'll find a bunch of different people with your name so the same goes for the Lord Jesus Christ or generically even the name God because you'll hear descriptions of God and it runs the gamut as far as people's definitions opinions declarations and so on about who God is about who Christ is and that's just pretty simple and that's what we're going to look at today as we go along and, and define who God is by the very words he says about himself so let's guard about idols. We know that, especially in the Old Testament, uh, God has made a distinction between himself and idols. I think we brought that up last week and uh, quoted Isaiah 45. Again, the warning in Scripture is why we're bringing up the topic. It talks about in um, Corinthians and um, other different places, uh, warnings about another Christ, another gospel powered by another spirit. You can turn there if you like, but uh, Exodus 20, when the Decalogue was given out from the hand of God to uh, the tablets of stone given to Moses, there are specific commands that are connected to, three specifically, connected to who God is. It was important enough, in other words, to lay them out in the form of commands. Exodus 20 and verse 3. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. We're going to read a text here a little bit later. If you're familiar with it, Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, it says, I'm God and there's none else. I'm God and there's none besides me. It matches with this. So it gives a command. No other gods. Verse 4. Thou shalt not make any graven image or likeness or anything that would... In other words, that would represent him, that would uh, either, whether it be a false god that would compete with him, or whether it be a god made, and you're thinking, this is the god of the Bible. I'm going to make a physical representation so I can look at him. This is a, this is a worship aid. These evidential things that people see or even create are not aids to faith, they're detrimental to faith and sometimes counter. And in this case, it would be a counter to true faith. Go down to verse 5, he says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for 
I, the Lord God, am a jealous God. So that's the reason he's jealous. Now, the first part of that verse says, Thou shalt not make any graven image. The word image. If you think about nowadays in uh, so-called civilized societies, which doesn't mean much anymore. A lot of times you look around and you see this country is not very civilized. But you don't see too many physical graven images. There are there are some there, but a lot of churches, they would even speak against those. But as they speak, they speak out an image in their mind. That's where sin starts in the mind. They will speak out an image and a misrepresentation of the character, the glorious character of God, by perverting God's attributes and creating an image carved out in their thinking about who they think God is. This is the same as taking a piece of wood or, or a piece of stone or some gold and creating an image that you could pick up and move around and look at and brag about and worship. So it starts in the imagination, and that's the problem today. Go down to verse 7 of Exodus 20, and it says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. So as people talk about who God is, about who Christ is, as, as they are trying to represent him by doctrine about him, descriptions about him, and as you give descriptions, you are creating an image and if it's the wrong imagination about who God is, then you're taking the Lord's name in vain. If you say God loves everybody, and we know, we've seen it over and over again, we're going to look at it again today, that God only loves the elect. He doesn't love people that prove out that they're non-elect in the end and they're cast into uh, hell. God does not love them. So when you say that he does, you are misrepresenting him. You're misrepresenting the attribute of God's love, what that means, what the fruit of it is. And you're creating an idol and you are using his name because you say God loves everyone. You're, you're using his name in vain. Preachers right now are standing in pulpits. They're getting paid a lot of money to lie about God concerning his character and his attributes. And they're using his name in vain. Sincere's all get out, zealous, a lot of fervor, a lot of energy is exerted, but they are using his name in vain, preaching a false God, creating an image in people's minds that doesn't match up to the word of God. So non-believers that do these, these things, these three commands, we know that non-believers are not under grace. They're condemned by these laws that say not to do this. And they're continually sinning in these things because they do not, um, they do not have a covering. They're not given faith to see through the lies that they're holding to. They're deceived, in other words. So God's sheep, we're going to see in um, John 10 here in a little while, God's sheep do not have another Christ. They've been shown the true Christ. They hear the voice of their shepherd, and they follow him and they do not hear the voice of a stranger. And those who have not believed in the true Christ, either they're offended by the true Christ and they don't want anything to do with him, or they're just flat out ignorant of Christ 
and they have an imaginary one that suits them, who the scripture says is even likened to themselves, says that in Psalms. You thought I was altogether likened to yourself. So that's the idea there. They're either ignorant of or they have not submitted to the true Christ of Scripture, which kind of matches the idea there in Romans uh, 10, 1 through 4. Ignorant of, not submitted to. So as we uh, mentioned in last week's introduction, that the true Christ is the one who either be worshipped as Lord or as Lord, he will condemn you. Either way, it'll bring glory to the Father, as it says in Philippians Chapter 2, concerning every knee shall bow. And this is uh, one line I wanted to, to bring back from the introduction. This is, uh, I repeated it twice last week, and I want you to catch it again. And I, I hope you believe this, and I hope you conform your mind and priorities in your life to this statement here. But in the meantime, everything else in your life that's going on in your life, whether it be busy or boring, Compared to the importance and priority of this true Christ that we're talking about, everything else going on in your life is an insignificant giant distraction when compared to this Christ. Really, otherwise, why would there be this mandate to worship Christ? That Christ be your God and be your master and be the one that you adore and that you worship, and that you count on, and that you look to as Almighty God, your Savior, that has purchased you with his own blood. So comparatively, what we're getting at, as far as priorities, everything else is just an insignificant, giant distraction. And, and I, I added last week, does that mean we just like just quit our jobs, and um, like we show up here and we come here every day, like eight hours a day in this room and, and worship God and we don't take care of our family and, you know, take care of our responsibility. And that's not what that means. It means that in everything that we do, we do all things for the glory of God, walking by faith with our eyes on Christ. Last week we had uh, five points and they were this. I'll read them quickly. This Christ is the final authoritative prophet. This Christ and this goes with our text, what we've written so far in um, Hebrews 1, 1, 2, and 3. He's our final authoritative prophet. This Christ is the official heir of all things. He has an inheritance. This Christ is the God of creation. This Christ is co-equal with the Father, having the same character attributes. Right? It says the express image of his person. And this Christ controls all things by the word of his power. In other words, he runs providence. He created it. He runs it. Now, that's enough right there, first of all, to how many denominations does that right there eliminate? A lot. Most. Some denominations don't even believe that Christ is God and much less created the world. And then it even gets scarier to people's imaginations that think they have free will that he runs it all because that takes power and control out of their hands and the one uh, that is over them they're saying in their minds we won't have this one rule over us so let's move on to verse 3 
sort of the third part of that verse there in verse 3. And we are going to look at this Christ accomplished redemption by the sacrifice of himself. So we're moving toward the work of Christ. As we make this distinction and ask this question, when people talk about that they believe in Christ, we say, which Christ? So gather up the things we said about his person, and now look at this, what we say about his work. It says, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. As we've said several times in so many ways, that this is the central focus and preeminent theme of all scripture, the death of Christ. What Paul say? I've determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said in Galatians 6.14, uh, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you can look at all kind of... Christ said, I came in the volume of the book to do your will, O God. You just keep going. You gather up these ideas and it, and it focuses on this point in history where this Christ came down to do this work. And it seems to even go into more focus when he mounts up on the cross and has this interchange between him and the Father. And he is imputed with the sin of his people. And the Father pours out his wrath on him. And Christ satisfies law and justice. And he said, it is finished. And that seems to be the most magnified point in time. The, the glory of God is most magnified. I had mentioned also before a couple times that I used to work at a place where um, they had this magnification. And you could put your, I one time put my finger underneath there. I thought I'm going to check out this microscope. I didn't know how to work it. I turned it on and uh, it's really, really fine tuned. And I looked at my finger and I finally got it in focus. And I saw, and my hands were dirty because I was at work, and there was some paint and some grease and different things under there. My cuticle was all kind of cracked up and um, focused in toward where my cuticle, you know, came to my flesh there. And my cuticle looked like a couple logs, you know, and I could see some stuff. I thought, man, that is, a, that's serious magnification. Christ's death. All the things written in the, in the volume of the book. There, there are a lot of stories about people's lives that are there for a reason, that teach other things. And as we keep getting closer and condensing the information, we come down to the point of when Christ died on the cross. And this was, we talk about this, and we say, this is why the world was created. He said that's, in, when he, in the Gospels, he said, this is why I came. So he said he was going to die, and the people say, no, you're not going to do it. He said, no, this is why I came. So in the fullness of time, we know he was born under the law of a woman. You know, he was incarnate, and he came, he took on a body, and these things happened. And this is why he came. And people, first of all, a lot of them didn't even know what, what's he here for. There are all kind of ideas, you know. Some of the Jews thought that the Messiah would come in some type of uh, economic splendor and deliver uh, the nation from all they'd be like the top dog nation and all the nations would like fall down before it would be this utopia where it's like you know jews rule you know the hebrews rule israel rules there's still some of that idea today but they missed the whole purpose a lot of people tried to stop it peter tried to stop it cut off the dude's ear with the sword and all that christ said you you, you know this is why i came 
So we see that magnification there. And then we see, we see the words that are in different books of the Bible. Isaiah talks about it pleased the Father to bruise him. Talks about laying the iniquity of his people on Christ. And this sacrifice, it, it's, it's going down. You know, it's happening. And that is the magnification of the clearest manifestation of the glory of God ever. Right there in the personal work of Christ between him and the Father. When this took place, and we can't skip over it. We can't miss it. This is it. It's the peak. It's the mercy seat. It's taking place. So it's the central preeminent theme of all scripture. And, and it boils down to the question concerning all that. It's condensed down to this, to this question, this gospel question, the gospel emphasis of what took place there. What did it accomplish for whom it was for? What did the death of Christ actually accomplish for those for whom it was for? If we can answer that, we can preach the gospel. Preaching the gospel is answering that. And when we do that, it will separate. You hear that statement, it'll separate the men from the boys. This will separate the false Christ from the true Christ as we do this. Now, again, when I say that everything else in the world is just an insignificant giant distraction, I say that in reference to everything else is common. Like when we open up the scriptures and read the scriptures, I know there's a bookstore down here, down the road, six miles down the road, half price books. You can go in there. There are Bibles in there. But there are other books in there that, like, you might find a manual for a 1987 Toyota truck. You might find a fictional story. You might find some kids' books. You might find some uh, books on tattoos, some books on diet. All these other books are common. They're just common compared to the scripture. God and his word is elevated. It's to be reverenced. So you talk about Hollywood actors that are idols, right? And let's not pretend like we don't have a little bit of that in our head. You know what I mean? When certain people pop up and on the news or on TV or on YouTube or whatever, I see whether it be a, a music performance or whatever, a sports performance, some UFC fighter or whatever. You know, there is some of that that comes out in me and I, I look up to them in a certain degree. I mean, if we don't admit that, we're lying. I have co-workers that can do things that I can't do. Uh, it makes me a little bit jealous, you know. There are people that know more, even in, in reference to the gospel ministry, that know more about the gospel than I do and that I look up to. Paul talked about a warning about that in 1 Corinthians. To don't say, I'm of this person, I'm of this other person. This thing of looking up to people can get out of hand if it is any other person besides the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the command is in place. Don't have any other gods besides me. Right? So let's make some distinctions here. Let's see the true Christ of the word of God versus the popular fake Christ that suits the mind of the natural man. We're going to talk about a few ideas and we're going to come back to this text, but Let's go to John chapter 10. And what we want to do is look at the, a specific Christ that did a perfect work 
And that perfect work was in perfect unity and harmony with the Father's will for a specific people. And he does that work in an effectual, accomplished, satisfactory, finished way, once and for all time, never to, to be repeated at all, because it's done. John chapter 10 and verse 14. Now I want us to see some things about Christ, the shepherd, and about his sheep. Now we cannot, I can't overemphasize this, that we cannot separate the shepherd from his sheep. There's a lot of separation going on. People are separating doctrine and theology from the gospel. They're separating the atonement from the gospel. They're separating the person from the work. They're separating knowledge from salvation. On and on and on, you can stack up the things that are separating that the scripture doesn't separate. What I want us to see here is a specific purposeful separation that God does when he talks about these that have been set apart, been chosen, and the ones that Christ loved and came for and died for, as opposed to those that are not his sheep. Verse 14, Christ speaking says, I am the good shepherd. And I know, and I'm going to emphasize some of these words here. I have them underlined, bold, and I've got them highlighted so I can remember to emphasize them. Now, I don't want to fake you out when I'm emphasizing these. This is my choice to emphasize these. There are words before these words and words after these words. And you use your own discernment to decide in the context whether or not these Emphasis are correct emphasis. I am the good shepherd, and I know those that are mine. And I am known by those who are mine. Even as my Father knows me, I also know the Father. And notice this. I lay down my life for the sheep. The sheep. That's his death. That's his sacrificial substitutionary death. Verse 16. And I have other sheep who are not of this fold. And I must lead those and they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Christ is talking about the Gentile flock. There's a Jewish and Gentile flock. They are brought together as one flock, one fold. This is him breaking down the middle wall of partition so that he can create one new man. This is the mystery, of course, that was spoken of that is revealed now of Christ bringing these peoples together, calling the people that were not his people. We've read all this, talking about that transition between new and old covenant. Verse 17, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life so that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of myself. We looked at this uh, last week here. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. I've received this commandment of my father. Then a division occurred among the Jews because of these words. And many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why do we hear him? I mean, is this surprising from all the things we've always read about these self-righteous ones that are practicing Judaism? 
Others said, these are not words of one who is possessed by a demon. A demon is not able to open the eyes of blind ones. And the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked into the temple of Solomon's porch. Then the Jews encircled him and said to him, this is kind of funny, I think. How long do you make us doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, evidently he did already, right? And we know that if you read before this, but if you read this right here, his response, Jesus answered them, said, I told you and you did not believe. Now, is Christ lying? You can read for yourself ahead of here. He already told him who he was. And uh, he did things that proved who he was. He said things that proved who he was. He says, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Now notice this. Verse 25, he said, you did not believe. Verse 26, but again, you did not believe. Why? Because you are not my sheep. That is the reason. You did not believe. This means that they cannot believe. This is a stress of the absolute sovereignty of God. This is not to be divorced from election. It's directly to, tied to the fact that they were not chosen. If we have time at the end, we'll go over some of that. Verse 27, the latter part of 26, As I said unto you, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And not anyone shall pluck them out of my hand. My Father who gave them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. They are one in the fact that he is the express image of his, the person of the Father. And not only that, but they are in harmony of wills. They are one in the same will and idea in purpose. And what he just said is the purpose of God. So there's a distinction made clearly in this, in this passage here that Christ came to die for his sheep. They will hear his voice. They'll follow him. They will have eternal life. And not all are his sheep. He named some specific people. He, he dealt with these people. He said, you, you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. That's the ground and reason why you're not believing is because ahead of time you have not been made sheep we know in other passages that if a person's not a sheep they're a goat they're not elect we know sheep don't turn in to goats and goats don't turn into sheep it's just not the way it works if one is a sheep they're a lost sheep until they're found and then they're a found or saved sheep so for now keep that in your mind and and we're going to look at some other proofs and distinctions but let's go to, uh, uh, go to John 3. 
Let's look at a comparison, make some distinctions, and look how uh, the religious world looks at the death of, of their Christ to see the difference. Let's look at um, John 3.16. I'm just going to look at this in just segments. This today is not an exhaustive exposition of this verse, but I'll probably talk about things about this verse more than usual. For God so loved the world. Now, I'm going to focus on the word so here. It's referring to the Father here when it says God. For God so loved the world. The word so has been assumed to mean that God loves you so much. I remember when I was uh, real young, I had, uh, speaking of idols, it was this little statue. I guess it was supposed to be Jesus. I don't know. And I had this white robe on, and he was holding his hands out like this, like with his eyes bugged out. And it said on the bottom part, on the placard or whatever you want to call it, God loves you so much, or it might have been this much. You know, it's like, kind of reminds me of one of those precious moments things. You know what I mean? It's goofy. That's not what this is saying here. It's talking about the manner in which he loved. God loved in the manner by which this world that he gave the way he expressed, in other words, the way he expressed his love is by giving his son. It's not talking about the amount of love. It's talking about the manner in which he expresses it. So it's not that uh, the love of God is for all people without exception. It was so abundant and overflowing that there's enough left to, if you would fulfill the condition of believing, you can have some of that love. That's, that's not the idea. But that's what's infused in there. I think, in people's minds. So in other words, um, it's not God loves you so much that it is like that there's a potential availability there that's offered. It's talking about the manner in which God loved the world. Now, we could spend a bunch of messages on what the word world means here. Just remember, uh, in the context of John chapter 3, he was talking to somebody specific. He was talking to Nicodemus, who was a Jewish Pharisee, right? So Nicodemus was a Jewish Pharisee who thought that God only loved the Jews and not anybody else. So in the context, it's talking about that God loves people outside of the Jewish world. And we know it would even include the remnant in the Jewish world. So we, we're talking about people out of every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation. All kinds of people. All kinds of people uh, without distinction. Not all people without exception. I mean, we could camp on that more, but... We know, we've talked about this before, that the word world is used about seven different ways in the scripture. And depending on the context, uh, it's interpreted to mean a certain group of people. Even in different texts, 
you'll see the word world sometimes within just a couple sentences used three or four or five different times, meaning one, two, and sometimes three different things just within a couple verses. So we have to uh, look at that. Uh, John 17 is one. Romans 11 is one. Those are two that stick out in my mind where there's multiple uses really close together that talk about the word world and use it in different different ways in, in the context. So it goes on to say that he gave his only begotten son. Now, obvious question, gave him for what? what for, what's the purpose? Well, as a substitutionary sacrifice. Look at verse 14 there. But even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So in the context here, it's talking about lifting one up. We know that later, in the later chapters, he was lifted up on a cross. That's what this is referring to. We know the story of Moses where the, the people there were bitten by a bunch of poisonous serpents or vipers, and they were dying. And they were told to make a brazen serpent, put it up on a pole. And whoever looks to that serpent, that's simply just look to that serpent and you will live. Referring to faith in our day. So there's the comparison. There was the type. The serpent was the type of Christ lifted up on the pole. Whoever believes in Christ, in reference to him being a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice, will have everlasting life. And they won't perish. The rest of the verse goes on that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, I think the first part about the misrepresentation of God loves you so much, that not being the what that really means, tied to these two words, whosoever believes. When you combine these and you infuse wrong ideas in both of those phrases is where you get this universality of course taking the word world and meaning it taking it making it mean everyone without exception because you jerk it out of its context whosoever believes is more clearly translated the believing ones young's literal translation says that everyone who is believing in him may not perish some Greek scholars just say simply the believing ones. Now, is let me ask you this. Some people might freak out and say, man, that's really twisting the English King James, which, you know, according to Peter Ruckman, has more authority than the Greek. He's dead now, by the way. Is that really any different when we say the believing ones? Is that really any different than saying, whosoever will, or whoever will. When you, when you get right down to it, it's not different. Because, let me ask you this, is there a difference between whosoever will and whosoever won't? Sure there is. There's a world of difference. Let's use the word world, by the way, in a different context to mean everything without exception. But it's like night and day. Whosoever will, whosoever will not. Those are two distinct people. Some people will say, there's a song that says, Whosoever meaneth me, 
when we read John 3.16 and all that, they say universally, you can say that means me. That infuses potentiality and conditionality in it. There are people that will believe and there are people who will not. We just read about people in John 10. You will not believe because you are not of my sheep. So when Christ said, whosoever believes, was he talking about those that will not believe? No. Who can fight that? He was not talking about those who won't believe. He's talking about the believing ones. They shall have eternal life and not perish. Doesn't take a PhD to explain that. That's very, very simple. That it's the whosoever wills and there's the whosoever will nots. Those that believe, those that don't believe. So we confirm that, you know, already in, in um, John 10 with the sheep, those that were and were not the sheep. Besides that, we know in the scripture, there are several texts that talk about faith is a gift, right? Several texts, faith is a gift. And in all those texts, it doesn't say faith is an offer. People keep wanting to bring it back to that goofy, humanistic, man-centered idea of potential conditionality that if you do this as if they had something in them that could do this, that they can make it work and that, that they can be the difference. But we know that faith is a gift, uh, even a work of God that has worked in God's sheep powerfully to cause them to believe. Remember, even the same power that it took to raise Christ from the dead. They said in uh, the context of um, 10 there, I think it was, or no, 6, John 6. What can we do to do the works of God? This is the work of God that you believe. That's the work of God. Does that mean a work that you can do for God? <laughs> no. Faith is not of works. Scripture says it's clear. Faith is a work of God in the sheep. He monergistically energizes the one. He changes the heart. It's irresistible grace. So as we said before, you get to that point, it's too late. It's already over with. God has defeated you by giving you life and faith. And he has brought you to himself irresistibly. And you're in. You are a sheep that has proved your conversion by the exercise of the faith that God has worked in you. It's, it's already happened. That's the way faith works. It's not this, you know, intermediate time where you say, okay, I see the faith coming. I'm going to receive the faith by something in me. No, it's not, it's not the case. You don't make it work. You're not the catalyst. Besides all that, see, we're, we're talk, we were talking about the death. Then we started talking about faith. So I want, to be, I want to get away from faith and go back to the death. So I want to say this. Besides faith not being meritorious or energized by yourself, faith is not what makes the difference between heaven and hell anyway. The object of our faith, Christ, is the one that makes the difference by Christ laying down his life. That's where our faith goes. 
So what his death accomplished for his people is the object of faith. Not, we don't have faith in our faith, in other words. We don't look to our faith. Look to Christ. So the question just comes right back. Who in the world did Christ die for? I just want to get real simple with language here. Talk about substitution. Which Christ, as we compare the true Christ and the false Christ, which Christ was actually really, truthfully a substitute? A substitutionary sacrifice. I mean, the, the word substitution means in the place of or in the stead of. So we ask questions because the controversy boils down to after we think we believe the gospel, we go out and we propagate that gospel by evangelism. And there's certain methods and words that we use. And when we talk about the gospel, we have to deal with the extent of the gospel when we put it out there. And we can say one of two things. Either he died to secure the salvation of his people. And you can say that in several different ways. Or we can just look indiscriminately, universally, in general, and just say Christ died for you personally, not knowing whether they're elect or not. So those are two methods. One is wrong and one is right. So one is just laying out what Christ accomplished, and the other is laying out, making it personal universally to something that you got to react to and potentially make it work. So here, here are the things, here's the language. If we say that Christ died for someone, if we're to say that, it means that Christ died in their place. In other words, took their place instead of them taking the place, receiving the punishment for their sin. It means Christ died for their sins. Christ died their death. Christ took their curse. Christ became a curse for them. Very, very simple language. Elementary, basic language. So if we know through the scripture, especially what we looked at there, say in John 10, those people that Christ looked at and said, you're not of my sheep and you, you don't believe because you're, you're not my sheep, we can't use this language to those people. We can't look at those ones Christ was talking to. If we were there back in his day, you know, we could just say, Christ, I want to clarify, which ones can you just touch them so I can know because I want to speak the truth. I cannot say to that person that you just identified by touching them and saying, this is the one I'm talking to when I'm saying, you're not of my sheep and you can't believe. Therefore, I can't go to them and say, Christ died in your place. He hadn't died, he hadn't died at the time, but I, I couldn't offer them universally something and say specifically Christ loves you he's he's going to die for you and so on this is extending something that is not true and in doing so nowadays after Christ has already died because when he spoke that he hadn't died yet and when doing that nowadays what you do is, is you steer the whole thing of the gospel away from grace you steered away from the fact that Christ is not the one making the difference. Because in that scenario, he did something like a general amnesty. 
He did something in general, nothing specific. And you're the one that makes it specific by what you do with it because it's only merely potential and it is something that he does to render people just only savable based on what you do with it. And what you're doing is you're setting up a whole new system of salvation that's not by grace, that really is fake grace plus works. And the person is making the difference rather than the death of Christ. In the gospel, we know that the death of Christ in and of itself is what accomplished and secured the salvation for God's people. It's all the different again, it's all the difference in the world. So that basic that basic idea of substitution should be very, very clear to people. And, and this is how far deception has gone in people's minds that people are so used to just using this language and just kind of like glazing over everything and assuming and infusing all these different things in these texts that over the years, if you hear it a lie long enough, you start to believe it, right? And then the natural man, because he's proud, he's self-righteous, he thinks he can do this, that, and the other, reconcile himself before God, and he looks to that idea of faith, and he perverts it, and he thinks, I got a free will, and I got to do something anyway to recommend myself to God. And just this whole thing just keeps churning. That's this false religion, the whole thing. And they've not been caused to stop and look and just say, can you define substitution? I don't care. Go to Webster. Define it. Webster matches this. And you just start asking them basic questions because nobody else will. And then they start seeing, oh, that kind of makes sense. And they're either going to listen to you or they're going to run from you because they're protecting their false profession. But nobody has been caused to think about these things because nobody asks these questions because they're automatically assumed in false religion. The idea of imputation. Imputation. Uh, is an accounting term that God uses in his gospel to where it means a transfer from one account to another, a reckoning to, a charging to the account of. And this is the way that sin was transferred from the elect to Christ as Christ hung on the tree. This goes to just basic math, which harmonizes with truth, the truth of words. If sin was taken from a person and put on Christ and Christ bore that sin that was transferred to his account and he took care of that, then it was actually taken care of. But if it didn't go to him, they're responsible for their own sin because it's still on their account. But if he took it on his account and took care of it, it's taken care of. Simple. Very, very simple. Satisfaction. It's just a more contemporary word for propitiation. As Christ was a substitute and as those sins for the elect that he substitute for were put to his account, he satisfied them. In other words, he took on the wrath of God until law and justice was satisfied for those sins. And he satisfied the wrath, anger, justice, righteousness of God for those sins once and for all time. That's propitiation. Did he do it or not? And of course we know that every successful propitiation results in an effective reconciliation. 
we read verses like in First um, Corinthians 5, it talks about God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing the trespasses to them. The word world's used there. It's the same word used in John 3.16. So the word world there in Second uh, Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. So, okay, were they reconciled? The ones he was talking about there were, because it goes on to say, not imputing their trespasses unto them. So this is a specific people that God took care of in the substitutionary atonement through imputation and satisfaction that resulted in reconciliation. It was real. It was actual. It was effectual. It was finished once and for all. And there is nothing you can do to change it before, during, or after. It's for a specific people. If it's not for a specific people, it's brought in the open in general, and people have to make it work. People are only savable based on them making it work. We can't have that. Go back to our text in Hebrews 1. We need to start speeding up here. In verse 3, Who being in the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, he had by himself, here it is, purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The modern King James uses this phrase, Instead of purged our sins, cleansing of our sins. The English Standard Version says after making purification for sins. There were several other versions that uses that phrase too. After making purification for our sins. You know, I remember a lot of times in a manufacturing shop, you'd hear mechanics talk about it too, uh, even plumbers, talking about purging a line. You know, you're shooting something out. You're cleaning it out, right? So this is not potential language. It's effectual. Turn. Let's let's look in uh, Hebrews nine to close, verse twenty-four. Hebrews nine twenty-four. For Christ had not entered the holy of holies made with hands, which are a figure of the true, but unto heaven himself now to appear in his presence. For us, he's writing to Hebrew Christians, for us, specific group. Nor yet he offered himself often, talking about offering his own body to the Father. He's talking about, that's the type of offering he's talking about, his, his own sacrifice to the Father. Even as the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies every year with the blood of others, for uh, if that was the case, then he must have suffered often since the foundation of the world. But now... Once in the end of the world, he has appeared, notice this, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The sacrifice of Christ is what puts away sin. It's a very simple concept we need to see. And if you go up two verses, it talks about that he did it for us, referring to the, the believers, the believing ones of these Hebrew Christians. Now, repenting doesn't put away sins. Believing doesn't put away sins. The sacrifice of himself is what puts away sins. Satisfaction of God's law and justice and that sacrifice, that activity is what put it away. Once and for all time. Faith is evidence that you are one for whom those sins were put away. I'm not 
knocking faith, but I am going to knock faith off the throne as being the cause of putting away sins, because Christ is the cause of putting away sin, the object of our faith. Let's look at one more. Uh, go, go back to chapter 1. There's just two more verses I want to look at. In uh, verse 8, I got a bunch more notes, but I ran out of time. Hebrews 1.8 says, But unto the Son, he said, the Father said to the Son, Your throne, O God, and I notice this, the Father's calling the Son God, right? And there's other places where we see the deity of Christ, but here's a good one here. It's not used that much, but the Father did here. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Notice this. This is why I brought us here. A scepter. What is a scepter? It's one of those things that kind of is the authoritative item that one holds while they sit on a throne. Right? It's pretty flashy, usually. It's got probably, you know, if it's kingly. Yeah. It, it's, if, it's, if it's a kingly type deal, I mean, it's got gems and... Um, Gold and different things, you know. So, and it represents like this. This is the one that's in charge. He's sitting on a throne. He's holding the scepter. It says, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. A scepter would be also something that um, one would kind of like point with too. You know what I mean? Holding it, visually, this dude's in charge. Pointing with it. You might hit people with it, too. I don't know. I mean, sometimes you get a stick and you're at a camp out or a picnic. You do all kinds of stuff with a stick. You walk with it. You brace yourself. You're just working with it. So I imagine it's an attention drawer to one who sits on a throne. And as such, we see what it's all about is righteousness. The righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. Remember, this is the righteousness that Christ brought in, established, wrought out, and that righteousness is a perfect righteousness that matched the standard, met the standard of the attribute of God's righteousness so that God can be both a just God and Savior, faithful to his own character when he justifies those for whom Christ died. That same law that condemned the elect now, after this sacrifice, because if the law was satisfied, that same law demands the justification for all whom Christ died. That's a specific work for a specific people because it doesn't demand the justification for all other people because Christ did not satisfy law and justice for all other people. And what's left for those people? What are they going to do to try to satisfy if they claim their faith? They can go up to judgment and say, but Lord, Lord, and then it can just fill in the blank. There's nothing to fill in the blank with. God won't accept it. He's not satisfied with anything else besides that propitiation, who is Christ, who satisfied law and justice. That is all he's satisfied. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Not the faith itself, the object of the faith, Christ and his work. Verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. We've got to stop there because we're way past time. Any questions or comments? We're going to have the Lord's Supper here in a minute. All right, I hope uh, 
it's just like every other time, you know, time, we run out so quickly. And I ask always, as always, uh, that everything that I have ever, ever said, standing up here, it's your task to try to remember everything all at once, <laughs> which is something I can't even do. <laughs> but that's the idea there. If, if we can, as we grow, as we, as we gather up these things and, um, are more skilled in the in the word of righteousness. It lends to our assurance, and we worship God because in our minds, as we have the mind of Christ, and we renew our minds with this gospel, we have a more quality spiritual life as we grow, and we our assurance grows with the faith that is derived from the faith. That's pretty important. If this Christ and this gospel is the center of your universe and everything else is an insignificant major distraction then what I just said concerning us growing and have a quality of spiritual life it must be pretty important to us so therefore the more that it can grow and we are into it more the more joy and peace in all these things will will be ours as we dip into and dive into the treasure of the knowledge of the wisdom that's that's in Christ. Some verses I skipped, some of my favorite. As we take the Lord's Supper, I'm not going to say this is unrelated to the Lord's Supper. This is the one whom these elements represent. Isaiah 46, 9 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Think of the text that's in Hebrews about how that he created the worlds and he, he sustains the worlds by the word of his power. He created, he runs it. And here it says that he, he decreed ahead of time, declared the end from the beginning. From ancient times, all the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will do all my pleasure. Here's the providence. Calling the ravenous bird from the east and the man that executes my counsel from a far country. Yeah, that's just one example. Yeah, I've spoken it. I'll bring it to pass. I've purposed it. I will do it. This is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Hearken unto me, ye stout-hearted that are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry. I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. This is spiritual Israel, God's people, the two sheepfolds that have become one by his death, his sacrificial death. 